So Lord, we just lift up our country to you. We lift up our schools to you. Uh, I just really feel a sense that we need to pray against anxiety. I uh, just think about all the kids who are uh, afraid to go to school now because of the news that they've heard, whether they're in Florida or Michigan or any other state. We just pray uh, that a spirit of peace would rest on our children, that they wouldn't uh, go into school with a sense of fear and anxiety. Lord, I pray that we would come up with uh, solutions, that we wouldn't uh, turn on one another and the banter would stop, and that we would just take this issue seriously and move into the chaos and uh, be with the kids. We pray for our country. We pray that there would be a turning of the hearts back towards you and that revival would sweep through our country. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated, but you're gonna scooch in, right? There's still people coming. Hey, just one more quick announcement. In about two weeks, uh, well, in exactly two weeks, uh, we are gonna have something called Open Baptism. We did this last year. I don't know if you remember it, but it was one of my favorite Sundays. We had, uh, I don't remember, 75, 85 people get baptized just in one service, and it was just a, it was a blast. So we decided to do that again. Uh, again, that's gonna happen in two weeks. Some of you have uh, voiced a concern that you don't wanna get baptized because you don't wanna have to come stand in the middle of the stage and talk to everybody, and I get that. I understand the fear of speaking in public, believe it or not. Uh, I get nervous every time I walk up here, but I get that. So this would be a Sunday that that's not necessarily something that you would have to do. We would still ask you a few questions and we would read that for you. Uh, so if you know that you uh, have said yes to Jesus but haven't been baptized, uh, can I just tell you that the next obedient step for you is to get baptized. You really don't have to pray about it. Uh, it's scriptural, right? It's sort of like a lot of things that God tells us to do. You don't have to pray whether or not God wants you to love your neighbor. It's in there. You just got to love your neighbor, right? So you don't have to pray about whether or not you should be baptized. You just need to be obedient. Uh, so if you said yes to Jesus and you want to be baptized, just stop at the information counter. There'll be a form for you to fill out just so that we know uh, what we're getting into, for lack of a better word. But even if you don't fill out the form, uh, even if you forget your shorts, uh, we're going to have shorts, T-shirts, uh, towels. We'll have everything here. If you know you're going to do it, bring your own. They'll probably fit you a little bit better. Uh, but that's going to happen in two weeks, and we just want you to get excited about that. Bring your friends. It's a it's a blast. It's just a great Sunday. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 1. This book is very early in the Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. Easy to miss because it's only four chapters. Really short story, and I think it's often an overlooked story in the scriptures, but it is packed full of application for all of us. It is a part of the historical books, and uh, like G said to us last week, it's a story. There's the, the ironic thing is there's no direct words from God. We don't see any quotations of God said in this entire narrative, right? There's no uh, exhortation for us to do something like we would get out of one of the epistles. So it's an interesting book for us to read, and the question is, can we learn something from a story? Can we read someone else's story? Can we hear someone else's story? And is there application for us? And I think the answer is obviously yes. As a matter of fact, that's wisdom. If you can learn from other people's stories, it saves you a whole lot of trial in your own lives, right? So there's one, there's one way to learn by observing, and there's another way to learn by experiencing. I can tell you observing and learning is much less painful than experiencing and learning. So there's something for us to take out of this book. And one of the questions that G asked last week is, who is this woman? Right? Who is this Moabite woman, a, a, a people group who was really uh, not spoken of highly of by, by the people? And how does she become uh, someone who has a book of the Bi of, of, of Bible named after her? 
right? How does she become part of the lineage of Jesus himself? Great grandmother to King David. Who is this woman? And that's part of the journey that we're on to discover how is it even possible for a Moabite woman to get to where she is and, and what we know. Um, I want to just kind of cover a little bit of the overview of the history, just so you have that. I know that G covered this last week, but a little bit of review would be good. And I kind of want you to hear this two or three times so that the, the setting is, is clear to you because it'll make a lot more sense. The other thing I want to encourage you to is read Ruth uh, every week. For the rest of the four weeks of this series, just find, it'll take you about 20, 25 minutes, depending on how fast you read. Just sit down and read the story. And every time you read it, just ask the Lord, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to learn, right? Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and read through it. So by the time we get through these five weeks, last week and the next four, you're gonna know the book of Ruth, which will be great for you. So the historical setting here is it's in the time of the judges. What does that mean? It, it's the time after Israel has been liberated from from Egypt, right? And they wandered in the desert for 40 years and, and Moses has died and Joshua has become the leader of the people and they've taken the promised land and they've, they've conquered all the different area and the promised land is theirs and then Joshua passed away. And from the time of Joshua to the time of King Saul, it was about 400 years, somewhere around 1400 BC to 1000 BC. This is the time of the judges. And as G pointed out to last, last week, it was a time when the people would, would wander away from God and a calamity would come, some kind of crisis would come, and in their desperation, they would turn back to God and often God would use one of the judges to help point them back to God and then things would come. But there was this cycle going on. And the one thing that G said that is important for us to hold on to, actually there's two, is that the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. Right? The people did whatever they felt like was right in their own hearts and their own minds. They weren't following God. And that was what was bringing about all this. The other thing that, that he said that just hit me so hard last week was in one generation, the generation after Joshua, it says the people forgot God. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, think about who they are. Think about what they've experienced. You know, even John doing worship, he's talking about them marching around the walls of Jericho and music and the walls. I mean, these people had seen some pretty crazy stuff, right? And in one generation, they forgot God. That's a good challenge to us as a church, as people. Baby dedication is just a good reminder for us that it's so easy for us and for our children to forget who God is and all God has done and, and what that means to them, Right? And the fact of the matter is, I love that G pointed this out last week too, is that we could be uh, critical of them. I think he called it historical critics, right? Look back and think, how could these people be like that? But the truth of the matter, it's our own journey as well. We wander away from God and we run into difficult situations and then we're pulled back to God. We kind of have that same tendency as individuals and as a people, God, of people group. So this isn't the primary point of my sermon today, but I'm gonna give you a little sermonette within the sermon. So you get two sermons today. For some of you, that's gonna be good, and some of you are like, oh great, I could be here forever. This is your bonus sermon. In all seriousness, when we stop and we look around at the condition of our world, the condition of our country, we ought not be surprised, right? We, we should be brokenhearted, we should be empathetic, we should be stepping into the chaos that exists all around us. We should be bringing Jesus into the crisis that we see around us, but we shouldn't be surprised. It's actually very predictable. The scriptures tell us exactly what's gonna happen. If you remove God, if you forget about God, 
If you indoctrinate your children to believe that they are a cosmic mistake, that there is no creator, if God is removed from their minds and from their heart, it is very predictable what the end results are going to be. I'm going to share two passages of scripture. We are going to get to Ruth, but I want to, the, the reason I'm doing this is because this is the setting then, but I think it's the setting now as well. The first passage of scripture is just going to come up on the screen. You don't have to look for it. It's 2 Chronicles 15, 3 through 7. It says, for a long time, Israel was without the true God and without the teaching priests and without the law. Look, let's just be clear. This doesn't mean that God didn't exist anymore, right? Can we go back to the earlier slide as I point to the wrong thing? So when it says that they were without the true God, they're not saying that, that God disappeared. What it said is they were not following God. Their minds were not God. They weren't even trying. They didn't have any kind of system to help them to walk with God. Verse four now says, but when they, in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him. He was found by them. Beautiful passage, right? When you seek God, you're gonna find God. In those times, and those times means the times when they weren't following God, listen to this, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. And great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces, nation crushed by nation, city by city. God troubled them with every sort of distress. Sound familiar? Verse seven, this is an encouragement to us, but you, you, the people of God, take heart, take courage. Do not let your, your hands be weak. In other words, keep moving towards God for your work shall be rewarded. So that's the Old Testament. Some of you say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. Let me read for you a New Testament passage that basically says the same thing. Romans 1:21 talks about the people and it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Clear description, I think, of who we are. As a, as a country, as a people group, we have turned away, and I'm not saying us as Grace Community Church, I'm just saying the broader picture, maybe some of us in this room, we've turned away from God, and something has began to go amiss wire in our, in our brains. Look at verse 28, then it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I always like that one, underline it. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So what's my point? When we, as a country, as a people, take God out of the formula, the end result is very predictable. Violence will come. We are turned over to our debased and futile thinking and evil comes. And so when we see things like Florida, we ought not be surprised. Again, let me say it, we need to be broken. We don't need to be cold about it, but we ought not be surprised because we have given this to our kids. We have given this to them when we've taken God. And I don't, I, I'm not a big, I'm gonna go all crazy here, but I, this isn't about taking prayer out of the schools. This is about taking God out of the homes, right? So it's, in some ways, even when I talk about that, it, it, it pains me to say it, but unless spiritual revival happens, it's just gonna get worse. 
It's just gonna get worse. But here's the deal. We, the people of God, have a chance to step into all of that chaos and bring God into it. Every opportunity, every one of these crises is an opportunity for us to stand apart and to bring God into the crisis and to bring revival to our country. Okay, so that's the sermon within the sermon. Back to Ruth. It's a time of the judges, right? And the people are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. They're writing their own moral code. There is no right and wrong. Whatever is right to you is right to you. Sound familiar? It's a very similar time in history, right? And so what happens is that they go astray and then calamity comes and that's a way of calling back. So the beginning of Ruth says that famine came. We know without a doubt that the famine comes because the people have turned their backs on God. How do we know that? Because God had promised them through Moses that if they would just follow God, if they would just listen to God's commands, that he would make sure that the rain came every year and their crops grew. So something's going on. If famine's there, then obviously they had lost their way with God. So famine comes, Naomi and her husband, her two sons, head to this pagan land called Moab to find some kind of sustenance. They need, to, they need to eat, they need to survive. It's an agrarian society. They travel several days to Moab. Naomi's husband dies, right? This is all the stuff we covered last week. Leaves her to be cared for by her two sons. Her two sons happen to take Moabite wives, which would have been frowned upon, but if they had converted to Judaism, if they had become one of the people, then it would have been okay. So there's an assumption that they probably did go through some kind of conversion, that they were becoming followers of Yahweh. So they get married and things seem to be okay, but then both of Naomi's sons die, right? And so uh, calamity comes. So here's, here's what I want you to do is just kind of put your, uh, put your mind into the mind of Naomi. So she lives in a society that says, absolute, that when bad things come, it's your fault. It's a society that says if your crops don't grow, it's because you did something wrong. If your baby dies, it's because you did something wrong. If you're sick, it's because you did something wrong. If your kid goes wayward, it's because you did something wrong. There's just a one-to-one correlation in this ancient society when it comes to any kind of affliction. We see it throughout the scripture. So Naomi, and we're going to see it as we read today, is already taking on the burden of all of this is my fault. If only we hadn't moved to Moab. If only my sons hadn't taken these Moabite wives. If only we had stayed in Israel. She would have been just riddled with the weight of this is all my fault. God is bringing about judgment on me. You're going to see it when we read in a minute here that that's her mindset. And so now she is hopeless, right? She has this great sense of of despair. And you're going to see that as well as we read. So just, I want you to have all that because it makes the story come alive as we read. So we're going to start reading in verse six and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So this is the hopeless, defeated Naomi who makes this history-altering decision in the midst of her hopelessness. Then she rose with her daughters, that's Naomi-in-law, and returned to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Let's stop right there. Hopeless, defeated, but still chasing after God. There is enough of a lesson in that first verse for all of us. When things are hard, it's easier for us to turn our backs on God. But Naomi heard that the Lord had visited the fields or visited the people of Israel. She was in the fields of Moab. She heard that God had visited him. She said, I know my life is a wreck, but I gotta find God. So she leaves to go towards God. That is a powerful picture for us. In the midst of your hopelessness, chase after God. God. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that I may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, there you see her hopelessness. And if I should have a husband this night and should bear a son, would you therefore wait until we were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for you to shake, to shake that hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha, not Oprah, kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. And she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And, and when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. There you see her carrying the weight of everything that happened. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Verse 22 says, so Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, meaning that the famine was over and there was a harvest. So let me pray real quick. Lord, I just pray in these next few minutes that you would allow this amazing story to uh, bring a lesson of impact to each one of us, that we would walk out of here with something to hold on to, that we would be different than we came because we've interacted with your word and with the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the keys to understanding and making good biblical interpretation is, is answering the question, why? Why was a particular book, why was a particular letter written? If we understand the why, then we're much better at understanding the what. As a matter of fact, I would say, if you get the why wrong, you're always gonna get the what wrong. If the motivation behind it, the reason for something being written, if you're seeing it from the wrong angle, you're gonna make the wrong interpretation. And that makes sense, this is the way it is with us. I tried to think of a, a great analogy for this in our own lives, and the best one I could think of was in coaching. If you've ever played any kind of competitive sport as you got a little bit older, especially and you had a coach that was a yeller and a screamer, right? The, the why made a lot of difference. If you knew that they loved you, the coach loved you, if you knew that they were just trying to make you a better player, if you knew that they really were just trying to make you a better person, if you knew all of that, then somehow you could receive all of that octane that came with the yelling and the screaming and calling you by your last name, if you've ever been a part of that, right? And so you start to hear what the coach says, not from the wrong angle, but from the right angle, and you begin to grow as a player, 
But if in your mind you say, that coach doesn't like me, the coach doesn't, is always getting down, and why is the coach always yelling at me? Why, if you come from that angle, then you don't hear what the coach says. You just interpret it as a reinforcement of the lie that you've already heard or the, the wrong assumption that this is being done because he doesn't like you. So you can see how the why affects the what. Now, when we look at the book of Ruth, the fascinating thing is for centuries, people have been arguing about why Ruth was written. Some say that it was written just to give us a genealogy, to help us have some context of how does Ruth even fit into this story, where did it come from, and I think that's absolutely a part of it. Some say that it was written, at the time it was written, to help David to expand his kingdom, to show that he had Moabite blood, then he could become king over that region as well, and that one seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Uh, I think some of it might be just a warning to the people that when we turn our backs in God, calamity comes, the thing that we just talked about a few minutes ago, I think that's a part of it. But here's what I think and a lot of scholars believe, and this is important. The book of Ruth is written to give us, don't miss this, to give us a portrait of the kind of lifestyle we are called to live if we want to faithfully follow Jesus. Let me say it again. It's a portrait of the kind of lifestyle we are called to live if we want to faithfully follow God. There's a word that's used in one form or another over 247 times in the Old Testament. And uh, the word, really, unfortunately, there is no English equivalent to this one, nothing even close to it. The word is hesed, which actually, you can do this because it's flu season. It's actually, can we do that? Come on. Hey, you got it. It's chesed, comes from your throat. Like, there's, we don't do that in English, but a lot of languages. This is funny. Meg was, when we were in Israel, uh, cheese shop, and she's talking to the guy at the cheese shop, and somehow they get into a conversation. He says, well, do you know any Hebrew? And she says, well, I know one word. And she says, well, what is it? And she says, chesed. He's like, what? Chesed. Then she calls another guy over, and he's like, what? Chesed. And they both went, Pff. They never did figure out what she was saying. Why? Because she wasn't pronouncing the word right. But the word is, right? Can we do it more? Chesed, okay? And the word is, it, there, so if you look at verse eight, when Naomi says to the people, may the Lord deal kindly with you, that Lord deal kindly, that's the word chesed, right? And so here's how I would define chesed. And if you look at this definition, there is no other word like this in, in English language. So can we put that up? Chesed is this radical, extraordinary Right? Let's just don't miss it. That word is extraordinary, uncommon, unpredictable, and I would say even reckless sort of love. Right? It's, it's a short story, but in this short four chapters, we're going to see this chesed kind of love shown over and over. And actually, what the author is going to do is he's going to show us that there is a predictable path and an unpredictable path. There is a normal, acceptable path maybe even logical way that a person should move towards another person. And then there is this picture of a chesed sort of lifestyle. And that's what we, the people of God, are being called to. So we're going to see it with the two daughters-in-law. Naomi is encouraging Orpha and Ruth to go home. Do the safe and sensible thing. Go back to your family Find yourself a husband, rebuild your life, right? So verse eight and nine, Naomi says, go, return each to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, that's chesed, as you have dealt with your, the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. This is the right, I put that in parentheses, predictable, ordinary path 
I am confident that if they had had a thousand people to give them counsel, these two daughters-in-law, and said, what do you think I should do? A thousand out of a thousand probably would have said, it's a no-brainer. You got to go back to your country. It's your only hope. It's your only hope of having a happy life. It's your only hope of success. You need to go back. You need to do what you need to do. But then Orpha goes back, but Naomi doesn't, right? Naomi stays, and then she says these words in verses 16 and 17 that she's really become famous for. She says, don't urge me to leave you, to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And here's the deal, we can read this passage and we can think, isn't that nice? Boy, she's really a nice girl. That was a really nice thing for her to do, to stay with her mother-in-law. But I want you to, to, to wrap your mind around what she was saying. This is what she was saying. I will go with you and I will never get married. I will go with you and I will never have children. I will go with you and I will be scorned for the rest of my life, she knows she's a Moabite woman. She knows she's going to Israel. Look, all of that is very clear. That's why she would have assumed. That's why Naomi assumed you're not going to find a husband in Israel. Go back where you can find a husband. She was giving up her very life for Naomi. Any thought of happiness, whatever that is, any thought of, of having all the, 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 the success in life, was, was, she was willingly giving up. She was doing the extraordinary, the unpredictable, look, the unsafe, maybe even some would say unwise thing. It didn't make any sense. She should have followed her sister-in-law or friend. She should have went back if she was doing the right thing. We get ourselves in trouble when we take the road of safety. We get ourselves in trouble when our only way of moving towards people or doing things is to say, what is the, the easiest way? What is going to be my most successful path to get there? This is the central point of my message today. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And Jesus lived a chesed lifestyle. He laid down his life for us. And we are called to do the same thing for other people. We are called to live a chesed lifestyle, to not look to our own interests, but look to the interests of others. This is why throughout the scriptures, we're called to love the widow, the fatherless, the alien, the refugee. Can I tell you, we are the solution to the refugee crisis. Let me say that differently. We should be the solution to the refugee crisis. Not because it's safe, not because it's easy, but because it's an opportunity for us to do the extraordinary thing and to step into that crisis and bring Jesus into the hopelessness that so many people are feeling. The church has been eerily silent as millions of people are becoming refugees around the world and being oppressed in that situation. We are called to do the difficult. We are called to do the extraordinary in the name of Jesus. That's what makes him known in a dark, dark world. We're called to give our lives away for the betterment of people. Think about all the ways that this can happen. So when people risk their lives and go to dangerous countries to be... Uh, to give out the gospel, to share the gospel. That's, that's chesed, right? 
but it doesn't have to be so extraordinary. I presided over a funeral on Monday. Uh, it's one of the harder ones I've done, actually. Uh, sweet young lady, lots of you knew uh, Christy Steinkamp. She was just a young girl. She had lots of uh, physical challenges in her life. Uh, but what just blew me away was all of the stories of how she loved, how she loved people. Over and over, people talked about Christy, how she gave herself away and never expected anything in return. How she loved the children in our church. She worked in the children's ministry, helped in so many ways. She just had this passion for kids and she was always giving, giving, giving. She lived a chesed lifestyle. And then when she passed away, her parents did something that I just, and I watched it and I, I, I watched in awe. She, she was kept on life support uh, for quite a while while they uh, worked out all the, the paperwork so that she could donate her organs. So they delayed the closure. I don't even know if closure is the right word. But for days, they waited for all this to happen. And it was excruciating. It was extraordinary. Her liver has already gone to a five-year-old. Her heart has already gone to somebody. Look, that is cassette love. Like a parent deciding, I know this is going to be hard for us. I know that we're going to have to wade through this pain for an extra few days, a pain that I don't even understand. And God forbid any of us have to walk through that. Such a beautiful picture of cassette love that we got to watch in this young girl and in her family as they walk through that tragedy. I think we can make the mistake in a sermon like this by thinking we have to do something out there. Oh, I gotta go be a missionary. I, I gotta go. But there are so many opportunities for us to live this cassette lifestyle in our homes, right? In our neighborhoods. It is all around us. It's really about doing the extraordinary, doing, putting away your own needs, like, like not doing what you want, but doing what you know the other person in your life needs. This is the key to a great marriage. Maybe God's nudging you to get involved somewhere and to do something that you've never thought, and you're thinking, that is crazy, man. I can't give up that. I can't give up my livelihood to go do that. I don't know what God is calling you to, but what I can tell you is it's probably not gonna be very safe. Because if it's safe, it's probably not God. God's not gonna call you to do the safe thing. He's gonna call you to do the extraordinary thing, to say to your mother-in-law, I will go back with you at the risk of never, ever, ever being married, never having kids and being scorned the rest of my life. I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm gonna go with you. Here's the point. Orpha, I don't know what happened to her. We never hear from her again. But Ruth, She's got a book of the Bible named after her. She's the great grandma of King David. She's in the lineage of Jesus because she lived a lifestyle of cassette. That is what God wants from us. Is that not powerful? I think about the impact we could have as a church if we just got this, if we just were a people who lived a lifestyle of cassette. It would change everything. It would change this community. It would change the city. The power is in this room through the Holy Spirit for us to have an impact beyond our wildest imagination. But it's not gonna happen if we do the safe thing, the ordinary thing, the advisable thing. Let's listen to Jesus and do the extraordinary. So this is a day for communion. So I'm gonna ask John and John to come up uh, and we're gonna do that. I think it's a... Uh, beautiful time for us to remember 
the extraordinary thing that Jesus did for us when he willingly came, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Look, nobody would have advised him of that. Hey, this is a crazy thing for you to do, Jesus. You got a whole lot going on. You should stay where you are. No, I'm gonna make myself nothing, becoming a man, not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant that went to the cross. Pretty powerful story. And the scriptures say that every time we come to the table, we are to examine ourselves. We're sort of ask ourselves, where am I with Jesus? Where am I with God? What is God doing in me? What is God doing through me? Maybe today the question is, what is God calling me to? What does it look like for me to live a chesed sort of lifestyle? What is that thing that he's asking me to do that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I know it's the right thing? Good chance for you to kind of let that sink in. So we're gonna ask the uh, servers to come down. As they come down, I'm gonna pray. If you believe in Jesus, then this is for you. You don't have to be a member here at Grace. It's just for anyone who believes. If you'll hold the elements, uh, we're gonna take them together. Lord, I just pray that as the elements go out, that you would stir deep in our hearts, that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, speak. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Just hold the elements and we'll take them together in just a moment.
down in my soul that I can't contain, I can't control, I want more of you, God. I set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, I can't control. Scriptures tell us that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, knowing everything that was before him, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, every time you take this, remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup, the cup of sacrifice. And he said, this is a new covenant, my blood. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to remember the way that you love recklessly, extraordinarily. Help us to experience that and then help us to love others the same way. Help us to step into the chaos that's all around us, whether it's in our schools or refugee crisis or the literacy rate. There's so many places where you've allowed us to begin to move towards people. Help us to know how to do that more, how to be a church that just models cassette sort of love. Help us to remember. Amen. If you want to stand, John's going to lead us in a chorus or two. Let's just sing it. Set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain. 
before the service and pray for you and ask the Lord if there's anything in particular he wants us to know about people coming in. This is what they heard this morning. Uh, there's somebody here who doesn't know why they came today, uh, but they're struggling with intense fear. And the Lord wants uh, you to know that he's there for you and we would love to pray over you. Uh, that there's a woman in the room who's feeling very discouraged, losing her faith and that you need encouragement. We'd love to pray over you as well. Uh, there's someone with migraine headaches we would love to lay hands on you and pray. And uh, someone in the room is a caregiver, and they've become very weary in giving care to somebody else, and we would love to just be able to pray with you. If that's you, we encourage you to come down. If there's something else you want the Lord uh, to receive or to receive from the Lord, just come on down. We have a team that would love to meet you down here and pray for you. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome Sunday. is not